The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Right now. Click. And we're live. It is Thursday, September 9th, 2021, 5 o'clock p.m. The wine is chilled. The skies opened up last night in the middle of the night and rained on my woodworking project, which I did oh, no. not put away because there was no way it was going to rain. And it you did. live in DC. Um, and I woke up this morning to find uh, my uh, table uh, flooded. And um, uh, the lovely thing about it is I sponged it off and it was fine, which shows that the setbacks in life are overcomable with a sponge. We are not allowed to have fun anymore. Uh, but in lieu of fun, we have Alexandra Brodsky here to talk about her new book, Sexual Justice. So, uh, Kate, why don't you uh, introduce Alexandra? Yeah, Alexandra um, and I overlapped while she was at Yale Law School and I was at Yale Law School with doing my PhD. I think we were like, we probably were starting research on this book or your 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 previous law review article or note. Um, because I remember us being in like the fourth floor, like library and like walking by each other quite often, like in like in orbit, because um, my Carol was up there. Uh, but um, Alexandra is a staff attorney at Public Justice where she works in civil rights abuses in schools and criminal legal um, legal system and the criminal, excuse me, and the criminal legal system. Got distracted by Gurgi's barking. Um, and, uh, and she is the author, most importantly, of Sexual Justice, which is this really fascinating and amazing look into Title IX processes. Uh, I have so many questions. So let's just kind of start with like, what for everyone out there, like what brought you to law school actually? And what kind of brought you specifically to Title IX as the thing that you wanted to look at? Sure, and I should give the disclaimer now that nothing I say can be attributed to blamed on my employer. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so, I mean, look, I, I mean, I, I wish I'd had sort of a more beautiful story than this, but I went to law school because I wanted to have a useful skill set and uh, I could only do things with words. And so that's how I ended up in law school. But you know, part of what made me think that law was useful was that when I was an undergrad, I was part of a group of students who filed a Title IX complaint against our school. And this was um, sort of, this was 2011, which, you know, there was a ton of media attention around campus sexual assault and Title IX sort of around 20, I would say 2013 to 2016. So this was a little bit before then. Um, and it was cool for me to see as a student that um, while organizing and protests obviously can be very effective, that actually getting the federal government to investigate your school turns out puts a different kind of pressure on them and makes them do some other things. Um, so I went to law school, um, having sort of seen how that could work. Um, and then 
during the time that I was in law school, which was 2013 to 2016, um, there was this growing backlash against school responses to gender violence that um, some of which felt entirely legitimate, which was stories of people being railroaded by their schools and a real need to think through what smart disciplinary procedures look like. And then some of it just felt like people who thought that institutions shouldn't do anything about sexual harms at all, either because they think that those things are fine or think that only the criminal legal system should deal with it, using this as an opportunity to, um, to thwart progress. And then I left law school, Me Too starts 2017, and um, the same kind of backlash replicated thinking about sexual harassment in the workplace. And so the book is about how to think through um, what do fair procedures look like in schools, in workplaces, in my brother's sci-fi clubs, and all of these institutional settings outside of the, uh, the criminal legal system, outside of the courts. And then also, what is the right doing with this? You know, what are the good faith debates? And then what are what's just backlash? Yeah, totally. Ben, you're muted. Which was fine because I wasn't speaking. Oh, I thought um, you were about to say something. Sorry. <laughs> I, I was about to say something, and so I was unmuting myself. Um, so I so walk us through that. I I um you know, if you were uh you've acknowledged that there's some portion of the anxiety about this that is legitimate. Um, and so what is the part of it that's not right-wing claptrap, but uh, legitimate concern about the integrity of processes and the uh, protection of the accused? And what separates those institutions for, that are taking those concerns seriously uh, in procedures from those that are not? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I, I to me, the best of the good criticism is criticism that can be levied at any kind of investigatory or disciplinary procedure within a school or workplace or whatever it is. So to, to make this concrete, people say, I think that faculty discipline in general should use certain kinds of procedures and our school is currently not doing that for sexual harassment. That's a problem with our school's sexual harassment procedure. And if I agree with you on the, you know, the procedural model, then, I, then that's, that's an important critique that is gonna help everyone. Um, it's gonna, you know, also help victims as well because often the problems with these procedures are really hurt, hurt everyone involved. If there's not an opportunity for everyone to tell their side of the story, if there's not an opportunity for to, you know, if there's not confidence that the decision makers are unbiased. Um, I think where I am suspicious of the criticism is when it singles out sexual harassment procedures. So, you know, there have been schools where professors have critiqued the school's procedures for addressing sexual harassment, even though those same problems are endemic to the school's responses to all kinds of harm. So they'll say, I can't believe there isn't this special kind of hearing model for sexual assault allegations when students or faculty who face accusations that could also result in serious discipline never have that opportunity. So that that's sort of when I when my alarm goes off. So make that concrete. Um, uh what are the analogous, uh, you know, when you have cheating, 
uh, which is the other big, you know, student discipline issue that always seems to come up. Uh, students cheat. Um, you have an assignment that you can generally measure. Is it plagiarized? Uh, uh, you generally have a bit of a documentary record. Uh, the anxiety that I always hear in these sexual uh, harassment slash assault cases is you have two people, two mostly consistent stories that are separated by uh, a, a different uh, account of uh, uh, explicit or implicit consent and there's no there's no obvious way to adjudicate that difference i suppose that situation could arise in a cheating environment too or with an accusation but um but it does seem to me that there are uh sort of special qualities of some of these sexual assault cases or sexual harassment cases um where uh, that are kind of recurring. Uh, are you suggesting that they don't warrant special procedures, or that they're that you really should design disciplinary procedures in general and then adapt them as necessary for particular uh, types of uh, allegations? So I have two responses to that. One is that I think. Uh, sexual assault is less different and sexual harms are less different than other kinds of harms that institutions deal with all the time than we might think. And also that those differences don't justify different procedures. So to start with sort of the first bucket, I think people often think about cheating because that's the, the most obvious uh, problem that schools are dealing with. But um, schools also deal with allegations of race and disability-based harassment. You know, I say that my roommate used an anti-Semitic slur. My roommate says that they didn't use an anti-Semitic slur. Someone's going to need to figure that out if I need to move out of my dorm or I want them to move out of their dorm and the school can't kick them out of the dorm unless they prove it up. Um, it's also physical fighting and hazing where there might be questions of consent, whether someone felt, you know, pressured to do whatever happens in hazing or did it of their own free will. Um, and I would also say that I think that in my experience, in my day job, which I am not speaking on behalf of right now, um, I represent students who uh, are victims of race and sex-based harassment. And there's often way more evidence than people would expect. You know, just, just like someone's an idiot and texts the next day and says, I'm so sorry that I did that to you. I feel bad about it now. Um, so, and then there's the question of how do differences in types of allegations uh, what does that mean for procedures? And if we look at the way that the court system works, we use, you know, there's one federal rules of civil procedure for all civil cases, including those that deal with sexual assault, including those that are just harder to prove up. Um, one criminal process. And I think that whenever we single out individual types of allegations for different procedures, that inevitably ends up Hurting. That, that's a that's a recipe for bias. That's a recipe for importing rape myth, and that ultimately ends up just hurting victims. And I think that there are, are so you know part of my push in the book is to say also to feminist advocates, it is not to our benefit to single out these kinds of allegations for let's say particularly non-adversarial procedures, which might seem like a 
good thing short term, but is inevitably just going to invite this kind of backlash and we're going to end up with uniquely uniquely onerous procedures for these kinds of harms. So just kind of to dovetail with this, um, when you are talking about the good faith actors, that being the school who are trying to investigate this, how important does transparency play in the procedural process? And are you ever concerned that by unifying a procedural process, you may miss the opportunity to actually gather evidence or um, find something? Is there is there something that could counter your argument um, where you, something may be missed for a lesser offense? So, sorry, can you, I, I'm not sure that I'm- I asked two questions and okay. I put them together and I'm sorry. So the first one is just in terms of good faith actors by the school, um, how important is transparency? Yeah, so I will say, okay, so I should say, I don't know that schools are good faith actors. So at the end of the day, even though I'm deeply invested in, and the book is it's about schools and workplaces and other kinds of institutions, I think that they have really important civil rights responsibilities. I never, I never understand myself as being on the side of administrators, but I do think that there are, there are good faith critics who are trying to, to get this right. I think transparency is really important and I think it is good when institutions do whatever they can to give the community a sense of what's of what's going on, which will be limited. You know, they're not going to publish opinion, you know, written opinions with everyone's names and details of what happened, but you can see how schools and workplaces have started to release reports that say, this year we got six different kinds of reports of harassment, and here's, you know, roughly. A, you know, an anonymized description of what happened. This was the outcome. This was the sanction as a result, which just gives people a sense of how that works. And I don't think that that's unique to sexual harassment. I think that that makes sense really for any kind of interpersonal harm. Mm -hmm. um, are you ever concerned that the attempts at uh, due process that it, and I'm using that phrase for lack of a better one at this sure. point, um, the due process in trying to adjudicate these kinds of claims and find get to the truth of the matter is influenced by um, possibly the news cycle or um, different individuals who perhaps have more clout at a private institution than others. And how do we protect against that? Because one could go for the aggressor, one could go very much against a wrongly accused person. I'm thinking of the Duke lacrosse players, um, which so. Yeah, I think that that's a risk, but I don't think that that's a risk unique to sexual harassment, and I don't think it's a risk that's unique to uh, institutional responses. So I think it's clearly true that, like, if I were, look, if I were a criminal defendant who had been accused of rape, would I want to be going through that trial in November of 2017 when the Weinstein allegations had just come up? Definitely not. Um, and if I, I don't know, if I was accused of embezzlement at the same time that the Madoff news was uh, was coming out, then that would be not a fun opportunity either. And, you know, I, I think that there are certainly risks in any of these situations of public or more localized pressure. The question for me is how do we guard against those, not should we just let workplaces no longer accept sexual harassment grievances, which just can't can't possibly be the answer. Mm -hmm. So I kind of want to take it back a little bit, kind of actually to Genevieve's question about institutions and kind of trusting institutions. And there's something about Title IX and I mean, it's actually it's actually unique to universities generally, like that universities have speech codes, they have Title IX, there's like all of these kind of ways in which 
universities have jurisdiction over certain things in certain ways um, that could be pursued in other arenas, but you like, but they get pursued in like in, in an area within the school. And I'm just kind of curious, like, is there a prescription that you have for making Title IX more effective just vis-a-vis -vis universities for people that are like suffer a sexual harm or harassment? Yeah, I mean, so I guess I would I would push back a little bit on the idea that universities are unique in this regard because I do think that most institutions have some kind of internal governance. Um, yes. Oh so, no. Yeah. Absolutely. I I meant like in the federally mandated way. Like, yeah, and there's federal civil rights laws for employment. And so yes. I think actually what is unique about universities in some ways and about schools in general is that um, students who are people in that context who are accused of harassment generally have rights in a way that is not true in the workplace. So if you're in a private workplace that isn't unionized, you're probably an at-will employee. And so if you're accused of sexual harassment, your boss can just fire you without any kind of inquiry. You know, your boss can fire you because he doesn't like the color of the shirt that you're wearing. And so there aren't these really developed um, procedures for investigating the claims in a way that you might actually find in public employment, where there's going to be a requirement of some kind of hearing and all of that. Um, but in schools, especially public schools, uh, students, you know, students and faculty accused of these harms have rights. Um, you know, I think I, I have two thoughts, one of which is about process and one of which isn't about process at all, uh, despite the fact that I wrote a book about process. So the process one is that I think it's really a mistake when institutions try to replicate the criminal justice system in their in developing their procedures. Um, it, you know, it is going to be really traumatizing for, you know, especially for thinking about a young person. These are the same rules that apply to high schools and elementary schools. But even if we're talking about college, an 18 year old who's just been sexually assaulted being directly cross-examined with that being um, sort of overseen by someone who is not a judge who does not particularly know how to facilitate direct cross-examination and probably not at the hands of a lawyer. So another thing that's sort of unique about this institutional these institutional settings compared to courts is that most people don't have lawyers. And so it's like your dad is doing the cross-examination or your, your professor on the faculty, you know, your co-professor on the faculty is doing the cross-examination. And so there's both the possibility that everyone comes out of that being traumatized and that, you know, witnesses, accused, the victim, and why would we think that anyone would do that well? And so the, the first circuit, I think the eighth circuit have said this, where they have endorsed um, an inquisitorial model of university discipline, where it's basically everyone submits questions to a board and the questions submits to other people. And part of their reasoning was, why do we think that it will be good for anyone involved? Why do we think it would be a truth seeking to allow just like randos to question each other? I mean, just also, I love, I mean, I think that this is such a great point and it is underemphasized. Like we create, like we already have problems with like this model in like in the public sphere, we replicate it with people who are not professionalized for this to be their main job. And we like, we just decide that they're going to, we don't, and they don't have incentives to do it well because it's not their main job. So none of the incentives are in place for this to be truth seeking even to be any more than a, like a, than like a per, like a completely like you know than just giving lip service to the idea of title nine um so yeah no absolutely i just kind of wanted to underscore that i think it's a really great point 
Yeah, so I think the less, and I, look, I think that there's some, I think it's helpful to have some kind of hearing, particularly when we're talking about adults involved. Um, but uh, yeah, super adversarial setups, I think are just a recipe for disaster. I also think this is not the topic of the book, but um, <laughs> there's just so much that institutions can do for victims that has nothing to do with discipline or sanctions. So I represent mostly uh, K-12 students. So young as like six to through high school. And often what they really need more than anything is just an adult to be like, okay, you guys are gonna walk down different hallways when you're going to math class. You're not gonna be assigned to lunch together. We're gonna get you free therapy and a tutor because you missed a bunch of math when after, because you had shared math class with the person who assaulted you and we want you to learn how to do long division. And none of that requires sanctioning someone. Mm -hmm. And so my, my hope is in part that um, Building 300 pages of a book to process. It's not because I actually think that that is what is most useful to victims, but because, like, can we just resolve that conversation? It takes up so much airspace in debates about sexual harassment. What if we could just sort of figure it out, put it to the side, and get on to more important things? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Speaking Jenny. of resolutions, um, do you have any particular? A standout models that you have known or seen that you thought could should be and could be replicated at a greater scale? Um, that's a good question. So I think that there are some models that I have faith in both because I think that they are good and because they are examples of some kind of consensus. So um, people might remember that Harvard Law School adopted a new sexual harassment process a couple of years ago, a bunch of the faculty wrote an open letter critiquing it and then designed their own process. And uh, it uses an inquisitorial hearing. It is, um, you know, it is sort of, there's a lot of guidance for people. There are opportunities for appeals. And my, I take a lot of hope from that, both because I think it's a good process, but it's also like you could get all of these different people with different ideological commitments on board with this model. And I should say that that model is actually no longer legal because of really bad regulations that came out from the Trump administration that required direct cross-examination. Um, you know, I, uh, in terms of sort of the more support services, um, I think that we've, it, this is sometimes easier for well-resourced schools, obviously, that have already have a robustly staffed mental health center, that kind of thing. Um, I've seen schools that have uh, partnered with local rape crisis centers and tried to, where they don't, if they don't have the resources in-house, they can at least connect to those resources in their community. What do you do? What do you think about like the kind of restorative justice model? Do you think, I feel like I hear this a lot from like these kind of like where the harms come from either. I mean, no, I'm not, I'm where there's, it is a scale of harms and sometimes the harms come from basically a lack of a person understanding how they're acting and how their actions are being perceived by another individual and getting to a point where they recognize that that's accept that, that assuming that they will accept that that's happening getting to a point of kind of like like rehabilitating it and i feel like that's something that comes up all the time in this space um but I also feel like it might not actually work when you do it at scale. Yeah, I will be, I'm of many different minds when it comes to restorative justice. I think it can be really important in many circumstances, you know, for sexual harms, but also for other kinds of harms. Um, I think that there is a real appetite from victims who want 
those options who might not want to go through this re-traumatizing adversarial system. All they really want is for the other person to take some kind of responsibility and invest in repairing the harm. Um, and so I would love to see those options expanded. Right now, there are like five RJ practitioners in the country who are available. And I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's like incredibly hard to get access to this kind of infrastructure, which requires real training. Um, with all that being said, I feel like sometimes people talk about restorative justice as though it's a silver bullet that can just be used in every single case. And it's just obviously true that not everyone accused of sexual assault agrees that they did it or is willing to say that they did it or is willing to take, you know, like engage in a process to take responsibility for that. And so um, I, it, it just sometimes we're going to have to figure out what happened. Sometimes we're going to have to do an investigation. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, has always struck me as as troubling about this area is that we have no agreed upon methodology for uh, resolving what are effectively evidentiary equipoise situations that you know we agree in the criminal conduct in the criminal context that in the face of something like evidentiary equipoise uh the defendant goes free we're not prepared to say hey if you have clear and convincing evidence but not proof beyond a reasonable doubt we should let a predator run around a, a campus um uh and of course we shouldn't say that. So we're dealing with some, uh, something like a more civil standard, but the idea that because some non, you know, but we also have a certain level of discomfort with the idea that given a uh, sort of preponderance of the evidence standard, 50.1%, uh, uh, we have a sort of discomfort with the idea that a non, you know, a non-judicial proceeding should take some kind of drastic action against somebody in a fashion that brands them um, uh, as having done something really horrific on the basis of a pretty low standard. And I guess I'm interested for your substantive sense of, you know, quite apart from the procedures that you use to arrive at this, you are now the adjudicator and there is uh, somebody who is, uh, you know, persuasively uh, contending that certain things happened and somebody who is with roughly equal persuasiveness contending either that they didn't or that uh, they were uh, grossly misunderstood. Uh, what should the substantive rule be regarding such adjudications? I think there are two issues there. One is the standard of evidence and one is the yeah. of proof. Because under, yeah. under a preponderance of the evidence standard, if the evidence is truly even, then the person will be found not responsible because 
it's the it will ultimately be the complainant or the institution acting on behalf of the complainant's burden to prove that it happened. And so if they can't get to that 50.1, then uh, then they're out of luck. Um, I you know I, I I hear concerns about using the preponderance, but I think um, I, I ultimately think that that is the best standard here because we have to remember the stakes on the other side of the equation. Um, that if we're talking about someone who feels that they cannot stay on campus if they are required to share, and this is, I think this is going to be particularly true at small campuses, they cannot stay on campus if they are required to share it with the person who sexually assaulted them, then there are also really grave stakes for on, on both sides of the V. Um, and I, I hear the the stigmatic concern that when someone's being accused of something quite serious, there might be effects on their reputation. Um, but I would say, first of all, we don't use a higher standard of evidence in, let's say, a civil suit because the subject matter could also be criminal. So when O.J. Simpson faced civil litigation for murdering people, he was found, you know, he 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 lost based on a preponderance of the evidence standard. And that certainly had the effect of branding him. Um, and I think, so that's not how we do thing in, things in courts. I also think that that's right because otherwise what we would be doing is saying, oh, something really terrible has happened to you. And precisely because it is so terrible, we're gonna make it harder for you to prove what happened to you and harder for you to get the support that is contingent on that proof. Um, so I, I ultimately, I understand the concerns, but ultimately I don't think that the right move is to say if you're accused of really egregious things that we're gonna, we're gonna increase the standard of evidence even while the stakes remain the same. Second question, um, I wanna go back to something you said at the beginning, which is that you thought there were a series of real issues here and then there was an interesting collection of uh, uh, issues about how the right was using it. And I'm interested to have you talk about that. Um, uh, what is uh, uh, what is the part of this that is merely a political instrument of of uh, of uh, non good faith actors? Yeah, I think that the that the that there is a group of people who use the rhetoric of due process when they really just mean that they don't want there to be any investigation at all. So the clearest example of this for me and where a lot of my thinking around this really crystallized was the Kavanaugh hearings, which whatever you think about the underlying allegation, whatever you think about what that meant for his fitness for the bench, the Republicans were the ones who at every single turn were frustrating any kind of investigation, didn't allow witnesses at the hearing, only allowed one of the alleged victims to testify. Um, we have now learned recently, um, basically made sure that any tip that came into the FBI just went to the White House and was never dug into. But they were the ones saying that this was some kind of travesty of due process, that someone would even consider, you know, that this man had been accused of sexual assault was in and of itself unfair. Um, and there have also been efforts by um, some, uh, there was a, sort of a, a rash of proposed state laws that in the name of due process, 
proposed to just funnel all allegations of sexual assault that were reported to school directly into the criminal justice system, even when victims didn't want that. And I think it's really interesting, you know, what, what is more fair about that? Um, it, it just means the school's hands are tied. We know that the police are only going to investigate a tiny fraction of those reports. We know that a lot of... Well, and, and also that a, a large number of things that are potentially and rightly actionable under uh, under uh, codes of conduct that quite reasonably apply at schools have no plausible criminal liability that attaches to them. Yes, absolutely. Like, for example, most sexual harassment is not a crime. Yes, yes, 100%. Um, and uh, so all of all of the the answer, all of the justifications that are given for these bills, which is, you know, due process, and then also some people pretending that they care about victims and only the police can provide a quote unquote serious enough response for victims, all of those fall apart. And so what we're left with is, oh, you just really don't want anyone to dig into this. And um, I am, I, I think it is important for people who take process seriously to be able to distinguish between the good faith critiques that deserve to be grappled with, that deserve to shape policy, and what it, you know, what's Betsy DeVos. Did you, did you, in interviewing people for the the book and talking to people, I mean, of course, you encountered kind of men's rights activist type of um, stuff, but um, God, I'm now forgetting her name. She's absolutely wonderful, Sarah. Um, she wrote an article about uh, how she and her um, wife were harassed by someone. Do, do you remember what I'm talking about? And like yeah, Sarah yeah, Beeren. Anyways, she's just like, it's like just a very, it was this, does anyone remember this? She wrote this, I'll try to find it. But there was a, a great story that was basically about how she and her wife were both in academia and like suddenly she was being, her wife was being accused through the Title IX process of like all of these, of like all of this harassment and like, sexually coming on to like a student and like all of this stuff and it basically was like the whole thing kind of was made up and it was all ended up being at the end of the day many years down the road and tons and tons of money and a lot of pain and pain and suffering this and lost job opportunities and lost job opportunities job offers and yeah it turned out i mean and i'm not trying to single out like sarah's case of like her wife's case of like this one like like moment but i do think that like did you have moments of meeting people whose lives had been upended by like there's i mean oh i forgot that uh gruber like they're the professor at harvard law school that had like the had a student um you like kind of seemed like that they were using title line or like anything something else to like i don't know if you've heard that well, case maybe I that's mean, not I, but anyways I am personally acquainted with a good friend who has had Title IX weaponized against uh, this person. And I um, uh, have every reason to believe uh, that the allegations are not merited. Um, I, I mean, I do think there is, uh, there are also a group of people most prominently Emily Yaffe and Stuart Taylor, who have kind of uh, spent a great deal of time documenting uh, allegations of sort of railroadings and, uh, and uh, sort of grotesque 
miscarriages of uh, and I guess my question is how common do you think that is any systems going to have failures and particularly one that's processing large volumes and the fact that there are some cases that go off the rails is not per se evidence that there's a systemic problem but it does raise the question of whether there's a systemic problem and I guess I'm curious where you sit on the um, on the you know mostly mostly we're getting this right versus we are erring way too often kind of question. Yeah, I don't think we have any kind of good way to assess that empirically. And this is part of what I struggle with, that people have, there's, I'm sure it's like terribly offensive, but that there, there's this metaphor about like blind people touching an elephant and everyone thinks that they know what the thing is, but they're all touching different parts. Yeah. So sometimes I feel like that's what we're dealing with, where people, especially when this conversation happens. I just want to say nobody ever asks whether the elephant consented to this. <laughs> that's a great point. That's a great point. Justice for the elephant. Um, but I think especially when this conversation is driven by academics, so many people are just saying this is the school, this is the policy at my school, and either it works and so they believe in it, or it's not working and so they don't believe in it. Um, and you know, let me say this: it is seems obvious to me that there have and that there have been investigations that have been mishandled. Um, the Arizona State one in some ways is so frustrating because it's such an obvious thing to fix. If you don't have a complainant, then you are not doing an investigation. Like in this in the in the story that Kate was talking about, there were just anonymous tips coming in and no one would ever talk to the investigator. So okay, you don't you don't have an investigation here at the end, put it on ice. And if someone eventually wants to come forward in the future, maybe you can dig up that file again. But this woman was just like, her career was just paralyzed until they could close an investigation that they couldn't start. So just don't do that. Um, I should say that I think that part of the problem is that we talk about sexual harassment as though universities and workplaces don't deal with any other kind of misconduct. So what part of what makes me suspicious is someone like Yafi is that she's very worked up about process in this context. But if it's someone's getting railroaded because they were accused of anything else, that just doesn't factor into the story. And so we end up with a bizarre situation, which we have right now, where there are these Title IX regs that give people accused of sexual harassment rights that go beyond what is constitutionally required in public schools, beyond the rights that anyone accused of anything else a university has right now. And so to the extent that these institutions are failing, I think that that is a conversation about discipline writ large and that we can, let's have that debate rather than singling out. That's a super, interest, a super interesting point that I think is very well taken. I think um, people like Emily come to this from writing about sexual politics, not from writing about, you know, disciplinary procedures in general. And so they're kind of not interested in the other questions that universities are called upon to adjudicate. But I think your point is well taken that, you know, maybe the problem is, you know, like, are they doing any better at this than they are at adjudicating anything else their cause have called upon to to examine? It's a very fair question. I just want to say that I, as a person that spends most 
um, spends all of my time and effort doing kind of qualitative interviews, a lot like what you did, Alexandra, and um, and trying to kind of figure out what the process is behind something that people know very little about and trying to fit it into actually understanding the mechanics. Like, I, there was this moment when you were just talking about talking about what it would be like to just structure a separation of K through 12, like a K through 12 type of situation where you, the accuser doesn't want to see the person they're, you know, accusing the victim and the accused are separated, how you rearrange all of that and how it actually ends up happening. I just feel like this, those types of details and those types of kind of um, realities are so underreported and so under discussed. Um, because I think that if you saw how it was to actually structure a lot of these solutions to some of these kind of, as you say, these constant attacks at the process and transparency and more time or like more adversarial or less adversarial, like, and get to get to the remedies, get to like the trying to make things better. There's just so much power there. And I think that, and there's, and you're right. That is, you've got all the boring stuff out of the way. Now you've written about it. Never have to think about it again. <laughs> and you can move on to, you know, writing books about how, like the, like the five best ways to structure, net, like, a, like a sixth, seventh, and eighth grader, like for like living in the same, like school for a year and not, you know, I don't know. That's valuable. That's very valuable. And it's funny because it was sort of a writing challenge because the culture, the stuff that uh, sounds in culture wars is so much sexier. It's so much more interesting. It is more likely to result in a story in the Atlantic where you have the worst versions of any of these procedures, either for victims or for the accused. And then people can kind of build up whole ideological commitments around that. But what I have found is when you sit in a room with someone and you say, okay, what is what is your preferred policy? What is my preferred policy? It is incredibly boring, but no one is that far apart. And I guess that's part of why it's it's boring because it's really minute policy. It's almost like everyone just wants to help people and make the world better. They just all have different, slightly different ways of doing it. Most of, that, some of the time. Yeah, I think that that's right. At least when we're putting aside the people who are just backlash. But the problem again is that no one wants, The Atlantic is not going to write a six-part series about, you know, the merits of slightly different questioning models. I mean, no one wants to read that. Um, and so my my the challenge with the book was sort of to do enough of the 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 nitty gritty to show people that these questions are resolvable without just writing like a 300 page HR manual, which no one wants to read. I don't want to read that. Um, none of you want to read that. And I can promise you that that is not what it is. Oh, I Mickey Hines, again. we have, uh, we have Alice to you shamelessly. Uh, the floor is yours. You have, I think a question that is going to surprise our guest. Well, to bring it into the topic of conversation, I have to atone for the fact that I went to an all-male engineering school. Um, it's no longer all-male, uh, and it's great now that's been co-ed for a quarter century now. But uh, I have an obligation to uh, complement technical expertise when I see it, especially from women. And uh, your video is superb. It's one of the best that I've seen. And I was wondering if you could just share for the purposes of benchmarking, 
so other guests know what what are you using what kind of camera computer internet connection oh i uh, think it's just it's really great I, le I love this question um everything i uh this is a hard hitting one. I really, I, what I'm about to say is something that with that preamble, I'm really upset to say, I have my <laughs> husband to thank for all of this. Oh, fuck that. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I know that I'm betraying the cause. Um, I have a, uh, let's see, a, a, a Logitech camera. You're looking at it, yeah. Yes, you can all see me right <laughs> Um, I have a, a, a ring light. And a light above me, and now I'm I'm blurry from you having look great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, no, Mickey's right, and your framing is really nice. That's really oh, oh wait, she went away. How do I bring myself back? You have to go. Oh, there you oh, go. There you okay. <laughs> Alexandra, I think that you should be applauded for your transparency about the setup. <laughs> I know. Uh, if it makes you feel better, but any better, after I started doing the show for a while. John was like, I can't handle this anymore. And just like bought me a really nice camera and like microphone and light setup. And I was like, and then set it all up for me because he knew I would never bother to do it. And so. Well, I think your awesome. camera looks great too. So. Well, it's just my Doom, the floor is yours. Oh yeah. Visible as always. Oh, thanks. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on a very concrete case. Uh, which is Kavanaugh. I know Ben thinks well of him as a person or thought well of him as a person, I think. And um, I, I just want to remind people that I am the only one of Brett's friends to publicly oppose his uh, nomination uh, on the basis of the allegations against him. Um, and I, uh, we have not spoken since I did so. I see. Well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, he obviously lied about some things. The Renata thing was so transparently, you know, embarrassing to, you know, to say what he said, but, but that's not part of the history that they were talking about. And I'm kind of curious how, how you see it. Um, I am not allowed to answer, to say what I think happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me say this. I'm not going to say anything about the substance about like what I, I mean, I don't have any inside information other than, you know, sort of different testimony. What I don't think is that the process to which Kavanaugh was subjected was unfair. I actually think that this was an example of where process is really helpful to complainants, where there were so many women saying, I would like the opportunity to tell my story. Um, Ford had witnesses um, who she wanted to testify. Um, there were all these tips coming in and none of those were vetted. And, you know, if I should say that in a, a good investigation should be welcomed by everyone involved, someone who believes himself to be falsely accused and wants to be vindicated um, and someone who wants to be heard, um, you know, about what happened to them. Um, and I, I think that the Republican critiques of the process are uh, are misguided and often in bad faith. It reminds me of the John Dingle quote. Have you ever heard this one? Like, I'll let like he like the long serving kind of Michigan representative, but he wrote he used to would say that you can write the substance, but just let me write the procedure and I'll screw you every time. 
was kind of like the John was like was the John Dingle line. So like I think that, but I because I do think that like I think that that is um, I think that the the appearance of procedure is like can be can be enough. Like and that if you if that is what is how you write it, um, I think that it kind of it's it's easy to to kind of make that an issue that is I don't know that just like is the whole ball game. So I would also just like to say on the question of procedure, uh, there is no good way to do this in a nomination setting. Um, this is... Yeah, that was a, awful. Um, you know, and in that sense, it's really quite different from... Uh, so by the time Christine Blasey Ford came forward, uh, and really from the day Brett was nominated, uh, a half of the committee was sworn to support him and half of the committee was sworn to oppose him and that meant they had to beat the facts both of them had to beat the facts until they confessed now i personally found her testimony uh extremely compelling and i had no doubt she was telling the truth as she knew it uh and that that truth was something pretty close to the objective truth. That said, uh, so that me meant that the Democrats had an easier job with it than the Republicans did. But there is no worse way to adjudicate something than to have two groups of people uh, who are already pre-committed to a particular answer um, before you start. And that's the nature of a Senate confirmation <laughs> hearing in a yeah, divisive yeah. environment. Speaking of performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you see that uh, somebody, uh, Len, Len makes the point in, in the chat that that's like the impeachment. And he's exactly right. And if you just change the word impeachment to Christine Blasey Ford's allegations, it all falls into place. So it's another way of saying just like the impeachment was not a actual adjudication of that question, this was not, except in the minds of the people who listened to it, and I started listening to it with, uh, uh, for reasons both public and not, that I, I, I had confidence in Brett and was, had none by the end of it uh, for a variety of reasons that I've talked about. That, but that's an internal, personal response. It's not, it has nothing to do with the adjudication except the adjudication of my own opinion. And so I think you have to ask the question, like what is the purpose of the adjudication for? And in this case, um, there, was, there were really two. There was what the public would think and then there was what the Senate would do and they're almost wholly unrelated to one another. Yeah, I think that that's totally right. And the last chapter of the book is about Kavanaugh. And what I basically say is that there's nothing to learn about this for process. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Yeah. I could not I agree with that more. Zero. Because, I mean, is anyone shocked that it turned out that the vote was on partisan lines? Does, you know, 
were we expecting impartial decision makers here? Of course not. To me, what it served to do was launder a lot of anxiety about the vulnerability of men or launder, or basically just like justified whatever people thought before they could use Kavanaugh as an example for. I don't think that that means that if an allegation of this type comes up that it shouldn't be investigated, but it just means that we have to recognize that a political process is not, you know, a, a look into what HR looks like. It's not, um, it's not an ordinary circumstance. And we saw this in New York with um, the, we just had this mayoral race where there were allegations of sexual harassment against a leading contender. Oh, yeah. I'm just like, well, I don't, I don't have a better option for you. I think that the press should report on these allegations. And of course, it's not going to be fair in the way that we as lawyers mean. Of course not. But it also means that you have to separate in your own mind the, and I think everybody instinctively does, absolutely nobody in this country said, well, you know, I thought Brett Kavanaugh probably did what she said, but then the Senate voted to confirm him and that means he didn't do it. Absolutely nobody respects that well, process. It's a as big a, country, Ben. Well, okay. <laughs> for people, <laughs> you know, take that process as an adjudication of truth. Just Justice Breyer, who doesn't believe that any of these people. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was good. In his yeah, public I mean, persona. Yeah. I mean, I'm just really curious what you think about, like, well, I'm just very curious, like, do you have, do you go into conversation, like, I, do you go into conversations or do you read things in the press? Um, so let's talk about the mayoral candidate. Um, I forget his name, Scott. Um, Scott Skinner. Scott Stringer, yeah. Stringer, that's right. Um, I had a friend who worked for his campaign, and it like like it's interesting because it actually ruined like so many people's lives, not just like his campaign, but like all of the people working for him suddenly were like you know, like associated with him having to make a stand about something they knew nothing about, like didn't understand they're like, you know, we're getting dragged on social media um, for it being ever associated with him. Um, but like in something like that, do you have, how do you gauge something like that after doing the research that you've done? Yeah. Like does you, yeah. I feel like I should disclose, like I was a Scott fan, so I was pretty bummed about how the whole thing went down. Um, I mean, where I came out on that was, and this, there's no room for an investigation of the type that I'm talking about when there's a explosive public allegation two months before an election. Who is doing that investigation? How are they going right. to do it on that timeline? Even when the New York AG invested a ton of resources into investigating Cuomo, it took months. Um, and so the press really plays the closest we have to an investigatory role. Um, in in situations like that, because the only way for us to get our hands on the facts is to see what's reported out. And I think that without sort of looking at the ways there were two allegations against Stringer, the first was announced at a press conference and so then was reported on as essentially political news before anyone dug into the allegations. And then the second was reported out by the New York Times in the way that we all learned about it was the New York Times with an article 
having you know talked to people who had information about the allegation. And I think that the latter version is much closer to what we want from the press in circumstances like this. Now, I don't know as a, you, know, you can't stop people from having press releases. And I, I certainly don't think that we want to, we, we don't want to live in a world in which people can't say what happened to them without getting the New York Times to agree to print it. But in terms of what is ideal, you know, that is what I would prefer. Paula, the floor is yours. And the result is that I mute, unmute her and she remutes herself. Paula um, is one of our this is in lieu of considered fun harassment in many states. And I'm going to embarrass you, Paula. Um, she just started her Famed one L year at Michigan. And so she's uh, we're very we're very proud of her. We're cheering her on. So, <laughs> um, so my question is, and I what are your thoughts on like dealing with the like outward progressive face of a school versus like people's actual experiences. And what I mean by that is like, I mean, in like when this happens in a, with malice, not unintentionally when a university kind of messes something up, but like, well, you go to an Ivy League university and you get your fun title nine, like thing at your orientation. And like, this is like, people want to go here for a specific reason. And it does have all of these people who are professors and the university that claims to be like the like bastion of being progressive and liberal. And then you have that experience and with malice, they treat you the wrong way. So I don't want to say gaslighting because I don't know if they're gaslighting you, but it might feel like that given what you thought you were getting yourself into. Yeah, 100%. I think that that's a great question. And there's been a lot of um, sort of both theoretical and empirical work talking about institutional betrayal as this additional injury that people who experience sexual harms, but also kind of other kinds of harms, then turn to an institution that they trusted, perhaps because that institution holds itself out as the kind of institution that would do a good job with this and then screws it up. Um, and I think that that could also very much be the experience of someone who was accused of one of these harms. And, you know, look, I'm I'm a litigator, so my answer is like sue the bastards. I don't <laughs> actually, you know, uh, you know when you've got a hammer. Um, so I, you know, I don't know that that's actually the best idea. But look, I think that there's been incredibly effective student organizing around these issues over the years that has um, known how to hit universities where it hurts, which is their reputation, and that's actually particularly effective when you have a school that holds itself out as one of the good guys. Um, because they really were hard to like raise money from your female uh, female uh, uh, alumni that have all come up through a system of sexual harassment. And then you have some type of like giant expose that is like, hey, guess what? We ignored all of the complaints that you lodged with Title IX for X number of years. So. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. That that's exactly right. It's not just, that's what I want to say. It's not just reputation though. It's alumni, it's it's giving, it's donor giving. Like it's reputation, but like people don't want to give to a school that has that reputation. Richard Wattenbarger, you get the last question today. Hey. Hi, Richard. Uh, uh, hello, everybody. Um, so Alexander, I, I'm really impressed that you decided to take on this whole question of due process uh, head on because uh, uh, and, and that you're doing it from the perspective that you you are doing it. I'm wondering if you've gotten much resistance or pushback um, 
just about bringing this in. I mean, it's I, on the one hand, I think it's probably one of those things that people say, yeah, everybody knows, but then there's going to maybe qualifiers or whatever. I'm just wondering what kind of response you've had. Yeah, I mean, I guess I should say the men's rights activists are mad at me, but that mostly means you're doing things right. Um, the, uh, you know, I think that my experience has been that people who work on these issues from the survivor side of things are um, mostly on board. I think that the exception to that, which is entirely fair, is I, over the years, sometimes had student, you know, survivor advocates say, the whole world is about accommodating these people, usually men who have hurt us. Why are you the person who's supposed to be on our side fighting for them? And I think that, that is, to me, that's really just a question of someone's role in a movement where they like, I don't think that everyone who's been raped has to sit down and spend a lot of time thinking about the rights of people accused of rape. Like that's, that is not their burden. But if you're interested, if you've taken on the work of systems design, well, you really do have to. And I think one thing that has brought, made the overlap in interests clearer is that over the last couple of years, we've seen a huge uptick of um, survivors being accused of sexual harassment by their abusers in university discipline. And I would imagine the same is true in employment, though I, I haven't seen it in the same way. And so it, it's really true that there's no, it's not like there's a clear category of people who have been harmed and people who have been accused. There's significant overlap there. We are going to leave it there. That hour went fast. It oh my sure gosh, did. thank you so much. Thanks, Alexander. Thanks for having me. excited to read this book, uh, which sounds uh, super compelling and thoughtful and uh, uh, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it was such a such a wonderful way to spend an hour. I'm so happy for you in this book. I will be tweeting about it as soon as I get my copy, which I've ordered, but somehow hasn't arrived. And yeah, we'll take care we of that. We will be back tomorrow uh, with uh, Len Penny, a.k.a. Uh, Lenny Soros, uh, who has abandoned her Scots accent <laughs> and is now uh, speaking only American English. Um, uh, she's still working on getting it right. Um, uh, yeah, she did say y'all, which was uh, we had to correct her about. That said, <laughs> she did pretty well. She sounded like one of us. Um, and uh, she will be here talking about... Um, uh, you know, all things uh, Scots poetry and Scots words of the day and that sort of stuff. And that'll be 22 hours and 58 minutes from now. And until then, Kate? We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we can sue the bastards. Yes. <laughs> I have a, I'm gonna tweet your new business card that I'm gonna get made for you as like a, as a book present. So 